Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, just following on from a previous discussion last week, there's a new release of Phoenix. It's 1.6.1 and same day .2 was released. So last week we talked about how Phoenix Gen Auth moved from being bcrypt to argon2 for the password hashing algorithm. And we mentioned how that caused out-of-memory errors on lower-resourced machines like you get in entry-level cloud VMs. And Argon2, by design, requires more RAM to operate. Well, Phoenix 1.6.1 was released to revert the change back to default to bcrypt on new projects, and Phoenix 1.6.2 was same day a release to fix a typo bug that impacted ES build. And this is just kind of fun to acknowledge because Michael Crum, he's on the Phoenix team and talked openly and transparently and with a lot of humility about what that 1.6.2 release was about. He said he wrote an equal sign instead of a colon. So I have a link to his Twitter thread where he talks quite a bit more about that, giving some insight. The only reason I bring this up and point it out, I'm not trying to embarrass or shame or anything like that, because the value is when experienced developers acknowledge, yeah, we make mistakes. Even when you're totally high-skilled and experienced, it's really valuable to understand just when you're coming new to programming that it is okay. We will all make mistakes. And just don't worry about trying to hide your mistakes. Just own them and just fix them and keep going. And I just think of like this particular bug, it forced a quick another release for Phoenix. But then I was just reminded, you know, just recently, there was this big five hour Facebook outage that took down Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and more. And it was because of a bug inside. Now, they're not pointing it to any individual or anything like that. But big things like that can happen. So just be grateful when the mistakes that we make, they're small and easily fixed, and we can just move forward. I I got a uh, senior dev joke. You want to hear it? Yep. Cool. All right. As a senior dev, you know, it's always, it's always good. Go to the doctor and get your colons checked. <laughs> but yep. All right. <laughs> All right. You got to have fun with it. All right. So uh, also in the news, inspired by the recent guides uh, showing how to get Tailwind CSS working on the Phoenix project with ES Build, Oliver Andrick uh, wrote up a guide showing how to set up Bootstrap with ES Build. So yeah, check out the guide if you're interested. I know Bootstrap is, is it more popular than Tailwind? I think that's still true. Well, it's been around a long time. So I know there's a lot of people that have projects using it. Yeah, I'm kind of enjoying this little bit of a movement out of NPM, like completely separating your asset pipelines because like this ES build thing is a mixed task. So there's like Elixir code in there that kind of manages it for you. And so there's a, there's another kind of like little mixed task wrapper around Dart SaaS which Bootstrap can use. Anyway, so I, I'm enjoying this. I like this little renaissance of, of asset pipeline stuff in Phoenix. So if you're interested in Bootstrap and you wanted to, to see how it works with the S-Build, go check out the article. And next up, just kind of following up on something that we've talked about way back in episode 43, we talked about the membrane framework. And there had some announcements that they're getting a big update. So the membrane framework is a multimedia processing and streaming framework for Elixir. This new update, it will make it possible to record WebRTC sessions to MP4 with H.264 and AAC audio. 
And WebM support coming next allows it to store as a VP8 and VP9 plus Opus. If you're in the multimedia streaming space, that's some exciting stuff. And then it's in Elixir too. All right, next up. Are you using Ecto with Microsoft SQL, MS SQL? If so, Josie Valim has uh, brought it to everyone's attention that the project is in need of a new maintainer. So if you're, if you're currently using Microsoft SQL and Ecto, it'd be really great to get more folks involved. So they're in, in need of a maintainer. If you're working with it, that means you've got experience with it. Consider contributing. Consider maintaining that library. It is under the Elixir Ecto org. So it is officially sanctioned. Uh, it's the best option out there right now. And just looking for some uh, continuing updates on it. So uh, check out the links in the show notes. And we'll be happy to hear from you if you, if you decide to pick it up and maintain it. I always love seeing adapters like that, which I tend not to use anything Microsoft, but I know that that's a huge database. It would be bad news if uh, the Ecto community didn't have a good driver for Microsoft SQL. Despite, you know, Postgres being really good and multi-platform and being the default, I don't want that to shut out other databases. So really looking forward to whoever picks up to, to maintain that. And next, the 12-factor app guide by Joseph was updated uh, for Phoenix 1.6 and ES build. So if you're not familiar with 12-factor apps, it's a way of how you design your application to be more maintainable. And it was actually a guide that was originally put out by Heroku. We'll have some links to that in the show notes so you can learn a little more about that. But I was first introduced to it from a friend who is operations focused about deployment and just the whole network operations. And 12-factor was a big deal for them because it makes their job easier. So if you're interested in having good build processes for Elixir and everything, it's a, definitely a good guide to check it out. Hey, I'm trying to remember what 12-factor actually means. And uh, from what I remember, though, it's just like having your secrets in your environment. That's what I've taken away from that. Is that basically what it is? That is one of the things, yes. That's one of the factors of the 12 factors? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, I got to learn the other 11 factors. <laughs> Also, a new library for Phoenix about handling compression. This is uh, put out by Howlith, uh, who is on the uh, Observability Working Group, by the way. Wonderful and fantastic contributor. I love seeing uh, stuff that he makes. Anyway, this is, a, this is called Phoenix Bakery. And uh, the short version of what this is is that it's better compression for your Phoenix assets. So Phoenix ships with some compressors in, uh, built in already. And I believe they just mostly just use what uh, what's ships with Erlang, though there is an extra little Brotley uh, compressor in there. But what this does is it provides better GZIP compression, Brotley supports, uh, and Z standard compression, which I don't think is actually supported anywhere. But good to be ahead of the game and uh, should be a fairly simple drop-in kind of replacement and you get some better performance, kind of a free upgrade, you know? How, how could you not want that? So um, give it a shot, check it out. Uh, I think I'll do that in one of my projects and see how it goes. And it's called Phoenix Bakery. And next is Nerves gets a Bluetooth support enabled for hardware like the Raspberry Pi 3 while working in Nerves Livebook. And that's the 0.2.25 release of Nerves Livebook. And that's just a pretty interesting thing just to say, oh, I'm using my Nerves Livebook on the device and I can get Bluetooth working. I imagine that could be a lot of fun to play with when you're trying to integrate and experiment with Bluetooth. So congrats to those guys. Mark, I wanted to ask you, um, ElixirConf is coming up this week and I'm kind of curious, what talks are you looking forward to? 
Yeah, I am excited for that. If you're wondering and you're listening to this and you're wondering, why didn't they talk about any of the big announcements at ElixirConf? Well, it's because we're going to be there or I'm going to be there. I'm going to be traveling. So we had to record this prior to going. So I am excited about some of the different talks. Uh, like one from Marcus Fay is about remote tracing and production clusters. That's just a topic we've been interested in. And then there's other great stuff like getting an update on what's going on with Elixir and WebAssembly and Rust with Kevin Hoffman. I'm excited about that. And obviously the keynotes, there's Jose getting get nerves updates and Chris McCord. So yeah, there's a lot that I'm looking forward to. And Brooklyn's closing it out too. Uh, really love listening to her uh, as well. It's really, really smart. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, let's see, uh, there's a couple of them. I'm excited about all of them, really. And it's a, it's a, I really wanted to be there physically, but didn't work out. That's okay, though. I'm looking forward to, well, your talk is one, Mark. I'm, I'm really interested in the, the globally you know, distributed nature of, of Elixir apps and uh, more so about the, the Postgres side of that. I'm really curious how that's going to work out. I'm also looking forward to Dave Lucia's uh, talk about Surface and how a bridge can be constructed to the JavaScript community. I think Phoenix 1.6 with the Heeks engine in there, starting to gradually take some of those surface features into, into core Phoenix. I think we're on the, the precipice of a, uh, well, I, I used the word renaissance earlier. I'm going to reuse it. I think we're going to get another renaissance of templating engines with Phoenix and LiveView being a, a big pusher of that. So really excited about that. And then last one to highlight is uh, Isaac Yanamoto's Zig Loves Elixir. And I'm a fan of Rust and Rustler. I don't do enough low-level programming. I really want to. But I've been really impressed with Zig's and Zigler, the ability to tie together the two systems so seamlessly. You know, you can write Zig in your Elixir files and it'll compile like cross-platform and the Ziggler library provides like those those memory those uh, uh, I'm not going to use the right words, but Isaac has demonstrated this. But the way that the Zig and Ziggler can communicate with like the Erlang VM and inform each other about memory usage and like canceling processes and stuff like that. That's some next level integration stuff there. So really looking forward to that and seeing what kind of improvements that's uh, that's going to help the Elixir and Zig community. This is a mutually beneficial relationship, I think, can really take it to the next level. So really looking forward to that and seeing what Isaac's got to say. Yeah, and I know that we'll have a lot more to talk about with the Elixir Conf after it's over and after we've experienced it. So we look forward to having more to discuss there. And that's it for the news. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Dominic Letts. Dominic, welcome to the show. Hey there. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is going to be a fun topic because I know when people think about doing mobile development, right? They're thinking, well, I've got my Elixir backend over there. I want to go native because I want the best possible experience. So I'm going to go native on my front end, maybe about Android. So maybe I'm using React Native. Maybe I'm using an Android Studio, writing it directly and doing mobile development that way where my mobile app is talking to a faraway Elixir server. And we are talking about mobile development, but that is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something really different and special, which is that you're actually running Elixir on the mobile device. Is that right? That's exactly right, yeah. So this is, uh, I understand this is very different from what many people expect there. But um, at our company, we're working on this kind of decentralized technology. Web3 is like the term often used. And that means we're not using the server that is hosted in some data center, but we're trying to do like nearly everything on the client side. And for us, that meant we needed to bring 
the whole software stack to the client. And we had all of that written already in Elixir. So that was like the natural step. We just had to bring LiveView over to the Android phone and make uh, Erlang run inside like an APK. But you get like um, the full application there. This is so crazy and cool. I think it's awesome. I want to really dig into this and kind of understand how this works, maybe get some tips and resources that you can share. But before we jump into all of that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Yeah, sure. I'm Dominic Latz. Uh, I'm CTO of Diode.io and a co-founder of that company as well. I'm living in Berlin, Germany, and we are a fully remote company. We actually started with this idea when me and my co-founder was, were still in Taiwan. I spent seven years there. This is actually where I was first exposed to Erlang and then converted from Erlang to Alexir. So that's, that was the upgrade. So I got like, I think like nine years of Alexia and Erlang experience now at this point. And so from there, when we had this idea about making decentralized technology, we really thought like Alexia is a way to go. It's so awesome in like doing mesh networking, peer-to-peer communication, end-to-end encryption, all of that just is a perfect fit for Erlang and the Alexi world. And so we stuck to that. And went on and went on and went on. And at some point we realized like customers want applications that run everywhere with them, right? They want them on the desktop. They want them not only on the command line. They also want them on the mobile phone. And so we kind of developed into the state and the need where we are. So that's really short about me. I could talk a lot about just being in Taiwan, which is like my, my favorite country after my home country, of course, but it's a, it's, it's a wonderful place to be. It has a, really uh, amazing Alexia community. I want to highlight that. That was my first meetup was in, in Taiwan. That was a Ruby Alexia conference. Jose was there giving some background and, and that I think that really captured me completely. That's pretty cool about uh, Elixir in Taiwan. You know, I've heard a lot of activity over there. Going back to the Elixir binary that you shipped into your APK. When I hear APK, I know that's Android. And that's the focus, I think, of, of what we're going to talk about today. But I'm just curious, like, is there a difference here with iOS and the Android system? Is there is like, it, are you able to do it on Android, but not able to do it on iOS due to other restrictions or something? Is Do, do you know much mo- about that part? Yeah, well, I, I, I do now. I, I now I know a lot more <laughs> than I, and I thought I ever wanted to know, but I'm actually doing this. I'm, I'm a Linux user. I'm like the, I'm the guy with the Linux notebook. And last week after we ported to Android, I got like a Mac. So I'm, I'm doing this now from a Mac M1. And I've spent the last week to figure out like what's, uh, what are the issues? What are the challenges in getting the same thing run on iOS? And it's not so much. There's some differences that Apple has done and some decisions Apple has done that makes it specifically difficult to build like Erlang on iOS. I would say the head start is probably the main difference. So Android has a head start. There's actually some other people who ported OTP to Android and have provided the cross-compiling configuration files. So if you check out OTP today, there's actually Android cross-compilation files. But there is no iOS cross-compilation files because it has some difference. Specifically, it doesn't allow building any shared libraries, iOS. So Erlang, when you compile that, you get this beam.smp file, which is like the core and it's like a dynamic library. And the same is true for every kind of NIF, like the crypto library that's part of Erlang. That's a NIF by default. So it's also a dynamic binary. 
And the same is true if you compile your own SQLite, for example, which I do for the sample application. Those all can come as uh, shared libraries. And those just don't exist on iOS. They say like, no, you can't. And if you try to, if you try to do that, you get like a warning and an error message. Interesting. Okay. So I don't want to talk about iOS so much. I want to talk about our success story here. Tell me a little bit about like, what, what's a preview of this Android project? What, is, what does it do? I had like started with a desktop application that runs as like a, a single application that looks like a native application. It's like a small to-do app. And that is what we ported to Android. So it's exactly the same set of features you have there, which means there's a small SQLite database. It's actually a pretty new port. It's called XQLite, the project. And I chose that because it supports Ecto. So you get like a full actor interface running inside the app. You get live view running inside the app. And of course, all of the Phoenix stack under that. From the views of it, it's really like your local development of the bare Alexia live view application. You got a database, you can just talk to Zacto. You have your live view web sockets, you can just talk to that. And that package is what I deployed into the Android APK. And so if you check out that Android project, Actually, XQLite, like, I would say that's the one thing in addition that I added there. Otherwise, it's just like the stock Erlang Alexia VM. But XQLite is an addition, so you get the Ecto feeling from the get-go. I felt like Ecto is what many people associate, like, as a core component of building live view apps. Yeah, definitely. I have to say, even even when I thought I wasn't going to need Ecto for a project, I ended up needing something to cache something else that I was working with. And so I brought in Etso <laughs> to be my interface to like Ets, which brought in Ecto. So yeah, I, I think I, I consider it a pretty, pretty core component as well, but that's, that's super cool. So I'm, I'm checking out the desktop app here. So I want to understand a little bit about some of the features that you're using here. So I see that you need at least OTP 24 and recent builds of WX widgets. Now, if I remember right, one of the features in OTP24 was a web view that ships with WX widgets. Is that bridging the gap here? Is that what's is that what's allowing you to render Phoenix and Live View and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. Ah, nice. Yeah. So for the desktop app, uh, that's it. What it allows uh, doing that. And so before that, we ran on our own branch of OTP23, and then we like took all of that. WX widgets uh, work on on getting the web view there and uh, contributed as a pull request. And I worked together with Dan Goodmanson from the OTP team, who was extremely helpful in guiding me through that. And so we ended up with the web view being a native part now in OTP 24. And so that makes it now actually much, much easier than before to run the whole desktop app environment on an OTP. Ah, I didn't realize that that was your team. That's amazing. We've got to talk a little bit about this desktop app thing, because most of the time, you know, lots of times, I guess, Elixir is associated with web technologies, even though it's not a web language like TypeScript or JavaScript, things like that. But a lot of times when people think about doing something that's web focused on a desktop app, they're talking like Electron. And that is not how this is packaged. It does not have all of the weird baggage that people don't like about Electron apps. So I just think it's really interesting. Like if you've ever thought of, I'd like to create a desktop app to do this because then I can have more native desktop access to resources on the computer and do interesting things like that. To run Elixir 
that way is really intriguing for me. So I'm just curious, was that an, just an experiment or did that go actually into a product? And are you, did you think it was successful? This has been really organically for us being, uh, as I said, developed. As, as our company grew and we started with just having a backend and we had like tons of application logic and we needed to ship it to clients. Because of my Erlang history, I was aware of this project called Wings 3D. And I don't know if you guys have heard of that. It's a desktop application. It's made by Dan Goodmanson. I mentioned him earlier. He is actually the, the one person who's probably the main driver behind the whole WX widgets implementation inside Erlang OTP. And as his, I don't know, side project or the other 24 hours that he takes from somewhere, he's maintaining Wings 3D. And that is a fully native desktop application that actually is a 3D modeler using OpenGL, but it's actually an Erlang. It's an Erlang application. And so he did solve the problem to package an Erlang application, I would say, the very first time. So I knew it's possible, and I was always amazed by him doing that. And the only un unfortunate thing was that he was not... He did not put it into a library or into a package to make it easily re repeatable. And so I basically learned from him and knew it was possible. And then we started incrementing into that and looking like, how can we make this possible with an Alexia app? The difference there, I think, was that I really didn't like the way of going with a native UI, like native components and like everything looks a bit like a Windows UI. We didn't plan to make a modeler, but a communication app. So I had much more something electron-like from the look and feel in my head. Yeah, where you're dealing with styles, CSS styles. Exactly, exactly. And you want to be, it should be the same across the platforms and you want to have full control and it should be a modern app. And I was really in love and I'm still really in love with LiveView. And so I wanted to use LiveView to make the desktop app and... um that's what we ended up doing. So in the beginning, it was an experiment. And then when it worked and like it was actually running, we were kind of amazed. And this actually works and we can ship it. And it's not too big. I think it's like 20 megabyte for the app. So, I mean, as you asked, you asked, like, was it successful and does it work? Like you can go to our website and download the app for Windows, Linux, Mac OS today. Technically, I think there's no issues in, in getting that to run. There's a lot of feedback I think you can give me in terms of like the UI and the layout and all of that. But I think there's many people out there who can make much better UIs and CSS design decisions than I can do. That's an interesting intersection of skills, right? Like I, I think that by building in WX widgets in the web view there, you're opening up a pathway for normally web-oriented developers to expand into the desktop, which is pretty cool. If I think about the other direction for a second from desktop developers going into web, I think of another project, which is Scenic UI. I'm curious if you've had any experience with Scenic UI, if, if you considered that. This also has native bindings and it's OpenGL driven on platforms, but it's from like a, a purely graphic standpoint. And so there, there is no quote native controls like text box or something like that. It re-implements that stuff, but in OpenGL. And so it looks consistent across all the platforms, uh, from my experience anyway. Did you have any experience with Scenic UI? Have you, have you played with that at all? I played around with it just a little, uh, not more than, than the, the sample applications. Scenic had, like, as you mentioned, it has like a different goal in delivering like a lot of uh, games, obviously, but also like applications where you have pixel perfect control. And I was in like the tunnel of how do I get live view running? 
And so my focus was, I have all this, this application logic here. How can I get it as a native app? And I want to keep using like the live view way of having my HTML, having that rendered and reuse that cross platform. I think there's like a really interesting part in terms of could we, is there a synergy in packaging, for example? That, that's something that I really was wondering recently because our goal was always to get like native packages. So like in Android, it's an APK, right? It's not something site loaded or anything. It's like an, it's a true APK. You can put it on the Google Play Store and it's like a, you, you get the app. Same with Windows. It's a .exe installer. On macOS, it's a DMG. On Linux, it's more involved. Like there's a, it's a self-extracting. It's not a Debian package at the moment. But this is the way we wanted to go. And I think this is something that, that's also interesting to Senec and, um, Maybe that's something we could uh, we could work together, or we could at least leverage each other in either way, for sure. Unfortunately, I think the um, on that side of packaging, the community is not yet so far. Uh, we have done a lot of like manual editing there, and I have not yet turned all of that into a, into a library to easily reuse that. So just the packaging part of that. First, I think it's incredibly interesting to say that we want to run Elixir locally as a client-side application. I'm just curious as to if you think it fits really well solving any particular types of problems that someone might have and say, oh, I, this is a good solution for me. Like, What are you doing that you thought was unique and interesting that you thought running it on the person's computer is better than them using a live view interface when it's hosted somewhere else? As I said, that's probably really connected to what we do. So we're we're part of this Web3 movement, the idea of a decentralized web, eventually where we don't end up with these monopolies like Facebook and Google owning all the internet. As long as you have these big server farms and they belong to a few companies, of course, you can just talk to the server. But if you really want to get away from that and more to a decentralized web where artists and individuals and organizations don't rely on centralized server farms, then you need more logic on the clients and you need uh, direct end-to-end communication on these clients. So for that, I think really it is a perfect fit. It's like, it's an awesome fit because you get all of this communication, all of this easy putting together easily networks and network protocols. You get that with Erlang. So it's it's a perfect fit. But I even think for just for a desktop application, there are some aspects that people outside that decentralized approach just maybe don't see or not not immediately recognize. Like one thing that I really like is this um, let it crash mentality. If you write a desktop app with Alexia, that means there can be one part of it wrong. Like you, you, you have a bug in it, but it doesn't crash the app. Maybe a window closes, maybe it just reloads quickly. But the app is still running and keeps back, come back to the, uh, to the user. Like I had in my, like the previous life, so to say, like having Adobe Photoshop close on you and your project is gone is just so terrible. You never want to have that happening. So having the Erlang VM running that and having let it crash is just amazing and making it so much easier to develop that. Oh, one more that I want to add there, the auto update. I don't know how uh, how far that will work with with Android and iOS. Not because technologically, but because of their policies around updating around the, the the stores. But on desktop, if you deploy on desktop, it's really easy to reload new Beam files. Dot Beam files. So you don't have to make new installers. You just say like there there's a spot somewhere on 
on a server or on some like maybe GitHub releases, you go there, you fetch the new Beam files, and you have like the the updated new version, totally seamless. Interesting. How how does that differ from hot code reload, or is that hot code reload? <laughs> yeah, this is kind of Erlang or like Alex here hot code reload. So you can either do it like hot code reload that in Erlang, or um, make the app restart after you downloaded new Beam files. But it's different from like uh, Windows applications where you need to get a new signature on your .exe file that is then approved, and then you ship a new installer, and they download that and double click that. It's just it's much easier because it's kind of an built-in benefit of Erlang. So I feel like I experienced that. I took you up on your offer, and I downloaded the drive project to see what it looks like. It's super fast. But when I first was using it, I could tell it was live view because I've used live view, right? It has a little, the little loader on the top when you switch from <laughs> view to view and the little spinner on the side. But then all of a sudden it reloaded, like maybe it upgraded in the background and that the loader's gone now. Like it's completely flawed. Like I, there's no indication whatsoever that's live view anymore. Like, and it just looks like a regular electron app it is super zippy and fast so it's very impressive yeah we just removed that in a recent update because we got the feedback that it feels slow like this is a psychological thing it feels slow if the loader is visible so we removed it yeah and now people say it's fast like it there, there's no chance. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the same speed yeah that's funny I remember doing that on my some of my web apps too. Yeah, the the the, the easy tutorial is just to put in like a top bar or something like that, but it reacts immediately, and that's the psychological thing. So in in my web apps, I actually put in a it's like 250 millisecond delay or something like that, some some sort of delay before top bar will kick in. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, so, so I try to <laughs> try to keep that in mind. I thought you were about to say you just make your pages take. A minimum of 250 milliseconds to load so that the loader is true. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's one benefit of, of if you deploy this as a desktop app, you never get the latency issue, right? Because your server is there where the client is. So you have always snappy feedback. It's all up to you. You know, the Android part here is really interesting. So I I do want to get to that. All right. One thing about desktop application, and I guess Android applications too, or any mobile, especially mobile now I think of it, notifications. So it's not just that the app works, you know, but when you minimize it and you're in a chat application or something like that, the, you know, especially mobile platforms, they'll, they'll depower the app somehow, right? And it kind of runs in, in background mode. And I think other, uh, even desktop applications might do similar things. And so notifications is a way to bring it back into the focus of uh, not the app itself, but some information to pull you back into the app. Are there any weird corners uh, that still need to be worked on, you know, in, in for running Elixir as a desktop applications like notifications or anything else that's uh, that might be a dark corner? I think for sure. I mean, this is, I, I would say this is probably the beginning of it. And um, there's uh, the example application has like a very small bridge right now and it's called it's like the android application is using kotlin that's my first kotlin project also don't be too critical of it (laughs) (laughs) so there's a kotlin bridge that talks to the alexi backend and then translates basically wx widgets calls that are being made in the android alexi app um not going to WX widgets because it just doesn't exist on Android, but instead they're going to the Android native side of the app, which is the bridge.kt, the Kotlin file. And from there, you have access to all things that are actually native to Android. And so we're extending that with more and more features to actually tap into the real native Android look and feel and behaviors. 
But notifications, there's two of them. So one is like the notifications from inside the app, like the app is actually still running, doing something and then wants to show up a notification. So that is actually pretty straightforward because you just, we just need that binding in the bridge file and then that can go out. And WX Widgets has like an understanding of notifications already. So it's going to be transparent and not supported in the current sample. But either you added this as yourself or we will add that for, for sure because we're going to need it. And the other part t- uh, type of notifications are those server-based notifications. So the app is not running at all anymore, but now you get like a WhatsApp message. Then that is going through an Apple server. And then that Apple server talks back to your iOS phone or in the Android case, it goes to a Google server and that talks back to your Google phone. And for that, you need they have a gateway and you need a server that is actually running and then informing their gateway and then that talks to your phone. So that's something that you need in a service. But then that is more, I would say, traditional server tech. I haven't checked whether there's already an Alexia project doing that, tapping into these gateways, but I could imagine there might be already because you even need that for normal native applications. They need some server application then to tell the Google or Apple backend, hey, inform this client that there's something new. Gotcha. And when that notification comes in, it says there's a new chat or something. Exactly. Some, something happened. That is a, when they, when they hit the notification or say view notification, it's actually a deep link into the app. And then that starts fresh and then goes right to what the notification's about. Got it. And in that case, it could be a URL, you know, just a full live view URL to like this thing was updated. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like deep links are actually pretty easy because they are all also in live view. They are links, right? So it's um that that matches pretty well. This is fascinating stuff. Normally I would save this question for later, but is this the kind of thing that you are looking for people to help out with? Like you're talking about the bridge, Kotlin integration. Is there opportunities for people to say, wow, this is really fascinating. I would love to be able to contribute and help push this forward. Are you open to that? Is Where's the right place to go for doing that? Yeah, for sure. We are open to that. We have created like a, a Alexia project around that, a GitHub project called Alexia Desktop. And so the Android app, the, the desktop library, every, all the pieces that we have taken out of our proprietary app, we try to put as much as possible of that into like an open source space. And so that whole thing, including the example app, is something that we would be very happy to take contributions. So right now, I think we are the one company driving that and we're happy to keep doing that like this is for us this is a marathon so we're not gonna go very fast but we're gonna improve steadily as we need it for our app but if there's other companies or individuals who are just interested in doing that like we are very happy to um to work together definitely just for myself i would be so happy to see this become like a a really valid and safe option to deploy desktop applications and make it there's so much you can make easier still so coming back to this Android focus, what is the development experience like? Because, you know, normally if I'm doing native Android development, I'm doing it in Android Studio and I'm often running it in an emulator. So are you running in an emulator? How does it work? Because it's live view, it's like you don't have to be necessarily. So what is that like? You can do either or. So when you run from the Android Studio, you just press run from the emulator and then it pops up in the emulator. You can also plug in your phone. Actually, that's what I did first. I just plugged in my phone and got it running there. And you can do that if the emulator is too slow for you, for example. And then it shows up on your phone and you develop it there. 
my experience has been I'm not I've not been touching the Android app, the Android bridge code a lot, not at all. After it was running, it's there. You have it. The only things you probably want to do if, and when you start out is you change the icon and the splash icon and the background color of the app. Like that, these are kind of native aspects of the packaging and the the company name, the publisher name. But once you have done that, which you do one time, you focus on the application logic. And the fastest way or the most efficient way I found to do that is just to open your actual Alexia application in Visual Studio Code and just run that as an Alexia app. And then you see that in a browser, like uh, you can see that just as a normal desktop app and interact with it directly or just open it in a browser and interact with it directly. In Chrome, you can just like say, like, give me the mobile view. It will show you the mobile view of that. And that's exactly what you get then on the phone. You iterate really quick, build the app, and then when you're happy, you deploy that to the Android APK. So the sample app is like a really, if you look into that, it's just an Android shell, I would say. And then inside there is a small script, the pre-built script. So when you build with Android Studio, it actually checks out the desktop app, the whole repo of the desktop app. So there's no change in the desktop app itself. Builds a release out of that, puts that release into a zip file and makes that a part of the assets of the Android app. So we take all the Beam files, all the JavaScript, all the PNGs, like everything you do, you have in a mixed release. Apart from the native binaries, we don't need those. We don't need Beam, we don't need .so files and all of that. So all the stuff that is part of your application puts it into the assets. And then that launches like the Android shell around it that takes uh, the app.zip extracts all of that and runs it. Let me just unpack that for a second. So like five-ish years ago or, or so, I went to a bunch of meetups about native scripts, about React uh, native, about Vue native, all these native bindings of traditionally front-end technologies trying to be the one language for building your, your mobile applications. And I remember a common thread between them all was was that people wanted, developers wanted, a single code base to build their web application and their mobile application. Okay, so that was the thread I remember. I don't think that we've gotten there yet, five years later. I think we've gotten a lot closer to that, but not being a mobile developer myself, I don't really know what the, the gaps are, are, are at this point anymore. Maybe we've generally given up on that idea because they are quite different. I just want to rethink about what you said. So this Android application currently goes and pulls your desktop application down. And it's just a shell over your desktop application. So that's implying to me that you've got your CSS that is reactive to the viewport size and resizes appropriately, right? Just like you would do, you know, if you were on a phone with your normal old website. Here's your sensationalist headline here. Did Erlang and Elixir just bridge that gap, one code base for your your desktop and mobile applications? Is that what we're doing here? Did we just do that? And by we, I mean you. <laughs> I think this is what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, this probably comes always with these, these asterisk risk where you say like, there is the packaging part of it and you have a logo and there's some things you have to learn about macOS deployment just to be able to set that up. So you have to touch the shell a bit. And I think there's some project that try to go all the way that around that. So you like, you, you get the APK and the iOS DMG file out of just hitting compile ones. I think that's super, super difficult. Like we would, we would need like 
50 engineers more, I think, to get there. So like what, what we are doing here right now is I think the, the easy approach, you have this thin shell. But then other than that, yeah, it's exactly the same app. And it's for that reason, like we're a pretty small shop. We don't have the capacity to hire five development teams for each of these platforms. So we have to support them from one source code base. So I think that's a good point to kind of set some expectations for anyone who's coming to look at this project. You know, there are some things that don't work for that native bridge yet. You said we took it as far as we needed to at that moment and you kind of left it alone. So let's just cover like setting expectation in your notes, you say there is no integration yet with the Android clipboard or other OS capabilities. So I'm guessing that means there's not necessarily a camera integration or gyroscope sensing. So just kind of maybe help us set some expectation, like what is there and what is not there in terms of the native bridge? If you look at Android and iOS, they decided to make things very, very different. And, and something I think is just like to, uh, to burden developers. I don't, I, I, I know, I don't know. So they had, they had different ideas about how they architect things. And that means that the APIs and, for example, sharing you like sharing in both directions, like you have a file in your app and you want to share it, like open this app with like another app, open this file with another app or you have another app and that has a link or an image and you want to bring that into your to-do app, for example, right? You have a piece of text and you want to bring it to your to-do app. Both ways of sharing are very differently logically organized in macOS and Android. So we have done that. It's a couple of lines of code in the Android app then, in the Kotlin code or in the iOS app in Swift code. And that's like the part that's really hard. If you want to bring that to one language, it's really hard to align just because the concepts in iOS and Android are so different. So that's something that we right now just do manually for our internal app and that you would have to do for your app as well. And I haven't really found like a good way to generalize them. That would be the perfect world where we can generalize them and then say, this this feature is just there. But often you have to define these interactions, like what type of file is that and what type of interaction you want to trigger with that and so that's something that you have to say like in the in the android language or in the ios language and so that's something you have to fill in uh, yourself and then you have to google like how, how do i do that in ios that's probably one of the aspects that stays there and then there's some aspects that are pretty general that you mentioned like the gyroscope or the camera like i i feel that there's some things that are pretty general where i expect those will just be added as we go and as we need them Right now, we didn't need them, so I didn't add them. But as we go, those can just be added. It's actually pretty easy in the source code of the Kotlin bridge. You basically see like there's there's WX widgets calls coming in. And then right now, everything is like a fallback to say, yeah, just say OK and don't, don't do anything. And then you want to overwrite them with like actually fetch some data from here or fetch some data from there. All right. So just to link it to our Brexit episode here, uh, <laughs> about Kotlin. Yeah. See, polyglots win. See, this is, this is where polyglots <laughs> win. This is a good thing. Also to temper the sensationalist headline here that we win and Elixir, uh, is mobile now. Yeah. There's still lots of gaps. And so, uh, just want to echo here that, yeah, like any community participation here and effort into making this a good experience is going to be, you know, really good for, for the Elixir community and shows that we're, we're up there <laughs> when it comes to like capabilities. You know, we're, I don't think we're at the bottom of the list, you know, of, of like niche languages that can't do anything but be a niche language. That's not us anymore. I think we left that image, you know, a long time ago. And I think in s- some folks' minds, that image just hasn't shaken off. 
and uh, the opposite direction goes is, is just as true, right? React Native in my mind is still five years old. It's not whatever whatever it is today, <laughs> which is probably a whole lot better than what it was five years ago. I think this is really incredible, and I'm really appreciative of the work here because I've always wanted to dabble in in desktop application development and mobile application development. I don't want the whole burden of learning an entirely new language and that being my only option. And so just to say it again, you know, this is where polyglots can win and inform each other and work together. I think that's always going to be good news. So I love that you are playing with this and sharing it out in the open as a GitHub page because you're, you know, you're talking about like, this is what you guys are doing for your business. You're not a huge team. You're not massive resources. And you're making the effort to extract some of this stuff into something that can be public. So I think that's really awesome. I applaud that. And I have always wanted to also create that Android app or iOS app or, and I've had different ideas on how to do that so I can maximize my effort. And especially if you're a small team or an individual, then man, this is really a fun idea to be able to say, I'm going to do it with Elixir because that happens to be the technology choice that I prefer. And I just feel super productive there. And like you're talking about, I can bring the power of the beam, the resilience, process isolation supervisors down into a native app. Man, that's awesome. So if people are wanting to follow more about this project, get involved, ask you questions or anything like that, where should they go to do that? You can either go to uh, the Alexia forum and ask, like, ping me there, ask there, or also on the Alexia Slack. That's usually where I hang around from time to time. Just ping me there. If it's in the forum, I think there's more value to like people coming in later. So I, I would, pro- I think that's preferable. Or if you just want to get into the code, just go to GitHub, open an issue or a pull request. And that's very much appreciated. And we can just discuss there. Especially if you have like mobile development background already, maybe you work with React Native, maybe you work with uh, across the different platforms and you have like this, it's very clear cut for you how things should be abstracted. Please like uh, comment, suggest. Great. We will have links to all that in the show notes. We'll make sure to include a link to your Elixir forum identity so people can contact you there. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.